Dr. Melvin Vopson is a truly fascinating character and deep thinker. A physicist, he is the proposer of the Mass Energy Information Equivalence Principle, has identified a technological singularity called the information catastrophe, and has discovered the second law of information dynamics. Melvin is the co-founder and chief scientific officer of the world's first information physics institute. His current scientific interests revolve around theoretical and experimental studies involving all aspects of information physics. I started by asking Melvin about his theory that information has its own weight, a weight independent of the device it is stored on. I guess you are referring to my 2019 article um, entitled uh, Mass Energy Information Equivalence Principle. And in that, uh, in that paper, I uh, proposed um, what we call now the fifth um, state of matter um, as being information itself. And this is based on the hypothesis that information would have a finite non-zero mass um, at rest uh, when is at, uh, in equilibrium uh, and uh, when is storing information. Um, where is this uh, idea coming from, essentially, and what are the, the, the basis to formulate this principle? It kind of goes back to 1960s, um, the emergence of um, digital technologies, digital information, digital data storage, and the work of um, Landauer, who was essentially the first, um, well, Brillouin uh, proposed in 19... Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I think it was 1951 and, uh, or 1953. And in 1961, that was followed up by Landauer in very similar studies. But this idea is known as Landauer principle. And um, it states that information is... Um, physical. And how uh, Landauer uh, concluded this, he um, took a look at um, computational processes and computational technologies and realized that these are part of um, the universe. They are made of matter, they are made of atoms, uh, like everything else, and they are part of the universe. And they should be subjected to the, the same laws of, as lo laws of physics, the laws of the universe and including the laws of thermodynamics. So um, in thermodynamics, we, we know that a process that is irreversible um, must dissipate energy. So this um, irreversibility uh, and energy dissipation goes, go hand in hand. What Landauer did, he um, realized that logical irreversibility is the same as um, thermodynamic irreversibility. In other words, um, a logical computational process uh, that um, is irreversible should behave like a thermodynamic irreversible process. And by irreversible process, I have, for example, I have a coffee in front of me now, is uh, very hot. Within a couple of minutes, it will get colder and colder. At some point, it will reach um, thermodynamic equilibrium to my office and you will have the room temperature exactly as uh, the uh, environment of the office. This process is, we call this process irreversible because the coffee will never 
go back to its initial initial state uh, by itself. It will never get to the initial temperature becoming hot without any external work, without any external um, energy added uh, to the system from um, outside uh, the system. So this process, we call it irreversible, and um, it dissipated energy because the coffee dissipated the internal energy and the heat uh, contained in the coffee to the environment. So Landauer suggested that um, um, computational processes, um, which are irreversible, should dissipate energy. And one simple example, there are many other examples, but one simple example of a computational process um, which is irreversible is the deletion of a bit of information, an information bit, leaving up um, outside um, the mechanism by which you store that bit, whether it's optically stored or magnetically stored or um, some kind of solid-state technology. A bit of information, once deleted, uh, it's irreversible, so it changes the entropy of the, the local system. There is a, a dissipative process, and it needs to dissipate a bit of energy. And this is called the Landauer um, bound, or the Landauer principle. He worked out what is the value of that energy. At room temperature is about 20 milli electron volts, uh, I can tell you, for, um, uh, for a bit of information. So... The fact that information is physical goes back to much older um, studies um, from Landauer and uh, Brillouin and um, a few other people, including John Wheeler. Uh, what I did in 2019, uh, I, I asked myself the question, um, if a bit of information is physical and you can detect, uh, by the way, this has been experimentally proven in a number of um, recent studies. So Landauer principle is a fact, uh, is not a theory. So I said, um, if a bit of information is physical and you can detect that energy associated to the bit of information when you erase it, what happened to that energy when the bit is at rest, at equilibrium, storing information? Uh, where is that energy going? And the only conclusion I, I could come up with is that it, that energy condenses into a small mass. And this is using Einstein's um, special relativity and the, the famous energy equals mc square um, relation, which is a consequence of special relativity, which converts mass and energy and shows that energy and mass are indeed equivalent. Um, so... This, that was the birth of um, the mass-energy information equivalence principle, um, which states that the three uh, states of uh, matter are fully equivalent, and uh, depending on the circumstances uh, they are in, they can manifest either as mass, energy, or, um, or pure information. So this is, um, in a nutshell, more or less, I'm not sure I answered um, your, your question, if I'm, you're satisfied, but in a nutshell, um, I think... This is the the fundamental basis of this uh, of this concept. No, you did. Thank you, and it's it's uh, fascinating, and and I think it'll be it's a kind of mind blowing as well in the sense of I think so much of the way we understand digital uh, is immaterial. You know, everything from the cloud, etc. That we've this sense that it has no materiality in its existence. And I think that has encouraged a lot of, you know, negative behaviors. But as as you point out, it requires energy 
to store information or to create information or to manipulate uh, information and that energy uh, is associated with with matter you you made a few um, uh, statements there and i i need to reinforce some of those ideas um, in a in in a in a clear manner for for the for your audience um the the information in fact is quite the opposite actually the the some of the criticism i had is that um the the the, the material nature of information information can be detached from uh, uh, some kind of material support, so it needs to be stored in some kind of material support. And many of my critics um, they confuse the mass of information with the mass of the device holding the information. In other words, let's take magnetic data storage. A bit of information in a magnetic data storage is a tiny magnetic um, space or region on the surface of a magnetic nanofilm which is magnetized one way or another, up or down, let's say, and we logically allocate uh, bit states, zeros and one digital states, to these magnetization states. If it's magnetized up, we say it's maybe a one. If it's magnetized uh, down, we say it's a zero. So physicists, uh, which are confined to this materialistic um, thinking, if you want. Um, they associate the bit of information with that tiny region of space, which is a magnet magnetized volume of a material. And they say that's the mass of the bit. And of course it has a mass and uh, there's nothing special about that. And they associate all the energies involved in writing and storing and stuff with, with the energies consumed to... Um, inver- uh, reverse the magnetization or, or remagnetize that region uh, or erase that region. Uh, this couldn't be wrong, uh, couldn't be more wrong than this. Uh, it's, it's a total misunderstanding, misunderstanding of um, what uh, information physics tells us, what Landauer principle is, and what my work um, is about. When I talk about information, I refer to this mathematical construct, these zeros and ones that we we construct to associate uh, to physical states, but they themselves have the mass. These ab- abstract mathematical states, if you want, this this is beyond. Um, you, you you I think you said mind-boggling, but I think it goes beyond that because it's a very very abstract concept. It, it kind of says that. The mathematics is is physical uh, to to some degree. These constructed mathematical states of information, these zero and ones. How should I put it in a more clear way? If you would be able to create a medium for storage information, digital storage information, that is non-material, so you remove completely the, the necessity of a magnetic film or some kind of flash drive, solid state drive, or an optical drive, or any kind of medium. If you could store information in a non-material state, let's say in space-time fabric, let's say, and then you would have created a a medium of information that has mass itself in a non-material medium. So this is what I mean by mass of a bit. Completely detached from the physical nature of the medium itself, the device, um, you know, the, the, the electrons, the, the, everything that goes into making this go about and kick and work is just pure mathematical states 
the zeros and ones that um, are physical. Uh, it's a it's a very abstract idea to to actually grasp. Uh, is and this is where the biggest uh, debate is about. Now you mentioned the physicality of uh, information and um, the fact that it, it requires energies is is true, um, but but is 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 it it's a is besides the kind of concepts I'm discussing in the mass energy information principle. Uh, yes, we need information to store data, to create data, uh, manipulate data. In fact, we need um, huge amounts amounts of information to keep these. Uh, hyper servers, uh, data servers running. They need cooling, they need uh, electricity to run the drives uh, 24-7. Um, you need information to write in the first place and the amounts of information we need are much higher than my estimates because you have to overcome these huge materialistic uh, physical states where the information sits and resides. Uh, in my studies, I, I'm not even looking at that. I'm just interested in the pure mathematical states that have energy and information. Okay, so let's get a, a definition in there because some people listening to this will probably understand information in a different way. So in, in the dictionary, there's two definitions of information. Um, one which you have described about physical states of ones and zero, and of course, maybe the more commonly understood a definition of information is is the transfer of knowledge. You're informing somebody about something, but but there's there's a very distinct separation in that definition, isn't there? You, your your definition of information is is more about a physical type of um, definition, isn't isn't that true? Yes, Jerry, that's correct. Um, so uh, it, it's actually a very good suggestion to set a quasi-definition, if we can, um, in motion. So we have a sort of unified framework um, on <laughs> discussing about the information. When I say information, what I mean, I mean the information defined in Shannon's um, information theory framework. So uh, Claude Shannon, uh, 1940s, um, he is the father of digital computing. He wrote... Um, uh, a seminal paper called the information theory. Well, it's not the exact title, but he developed the information theory. <clears throat> and um, when I talk about information and information states, I strictly um, refer to Shannon information theory framework. Uh, what is that? Um, uh, in Shannon's information theory framework, information is defined as a function, a mathematical function, which is um, linked to the probability of an event to occur or not, or how how probable is an event to occur. So, and this is a logarithmic function. It has been introduced by um, Shannon in 1940s as part of, uh, of his theory. And uh, But what we need to retain from this is the fact that information is... Uh, intimately linked to probabilistic nature of um, events and things and everything in nature. So as soon as you have um, um, a probability of something to occur, then you can have an information content associated to that event and you can measure that in bits or some other units which are given by a base of a logarithm in this um, function introduced by, by Shannon. 
So, of course, information can mean different things in different contexts. Um, you can link information to uh, some degree to uncertainty of an event because uncertainty is linked to the probability of the event. Um, uh, is inversely, inversely proportional to the prob probability. So you can have uh, variants of this, this definition. Um, in my dictionary, I think I found uh, a simple definition that is facts provided or learned about something, um, defining information, I mean. Um, but, but in my studies, and when I refer to information, is um, simply this probabilistic nature of um, everything and a mathematical function that uh, measures um, the amount of information you need. You can extract from observing this event with a given probability. Now, this is the interesting bit now. The, the, the fact that you can define information like this, um, this is the, the highest level of defining, if you want, information. Because from this, you can redefine everything else in the, in the same framework. Um, so taking digital information, for example, zeros and one, um, what do they mean? This is a digital, you can, let's take this podcast. You are recording this podcast, aren't you? So this podcast is going to be our voices, our conversation, everything we communicate here, which represents information projected from our brains, uh, information that we learned, uh, maybe something that we read in this moment. Everything that we say, it's some form of information through a different definition, let's say, as we ordinary people will understand it. Uh, it's information. You convert this information into another form of information, which is digital information. You just digitize everything by recording this onto some kind of digital data storage device. And... And then I can go beyond that. This is where I go beyond that. And I say, once you did, you convert it to a digital state, the Shannon kicks in and I can use Shannon information theory to look at the probabilistic nature of these digital bits and how they occur and convert this message into a quantity called information in Shannon's information theory framework and measure it in a specific quantity called the number of bits. So chances are if we go half an hour or one hour, you are going to have probably a gigabyte of data or a few hundred megabytes of this podcast being recorded and converted into digital information, which can be measured through this concept of Shannon information theory and probabilistic nature in bits. So what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that everything can be redefined in, in this framework, everything. So this information of this podcast, we can measure it, you can measure it uh, based on Shannon theory as information. It, it doesn't mean that it was an interesting podcast or boring or it's not measuring, you know, whether it was exciting or, you know, or sad or it's just measuring. It's a kind of ones and zeros and the quantity of those bits. This is a very good point you are um, um, raising there. In fact, it's a problem I have with the whole information theory. It does information theory does not distinguish between random bits, bit states, or random information, or it cannot resolve the quality of information. Should I say it? In other words, if you have, let's say, this podcast becomes five hundred megabytes 
if you have 500 megabytes of data, which results into no message whatsoever in nothing when you read out is completely gibberish random characters that are being generated uh, making up 500 megabytes that amount of information will wait or will have uh, an identical ma uh, energy content to 500 megabytes of information that can contain maybe the secret of um, Kennedy assassination or um, uh, you know the the secret of what is dark matter or um, as you said, um, feelings and uh, emotions or very exciting things. Um, the quality of information is not captured in this um, framework, in this information theory. You cannot tell whether it's good, whether it's bad, um, what's the quality, which one is better than the other. It's just a volume, if you want, or a, a quantity measured in bits. And I do have a problem with this. Uh, I wish I, I would know how to maybe improve the theory a bit or maybe add, um, add something to it to maybe solve this. And then the difference, what is the difference between information and data? Not very different. Uh, it's, I think I found an example um, somewhere. If um, I, I don't remember where I read this, it might be on a on an article, but uh, the, the question was posted there, and uh, this this was the explanation, which I don't entirely agree with that. But um, roughly, it goes like this: If you have, um, let's say, uh, a McDonald's, and uh, somebody sits in a corner and records how many how many people enter. Um, McDonald's to buy a burger in a given day and records this information in a database, okay? That is data, okay? We call this data, so it, it records the data. But if the same person goes on and starts doing some statistical analysis on that data set, by looking at the gender distribution, for example, how many male, female, or how many um, group by group age, for example, or by hair color, um, doing some kind of analysis and uh, creating probabilities uh, of occurring of a specific group age or or, or gender base or um, uh, looks, if you want, skin color or other things, uh, that becomes information. The moment you start processing the data into um, this probabilistic approach, uh, implying the Shannon's functions and the information um, theory, I would say that that becomes information and you use the data to um, produce information. However, to me, to me, the data and information are the same thing. They converge to the same thing when you get down to this probabilistic approach in within the Shannon information theory framework. In other words, any information on a hard disk drive or a memory device, um, which is digital, um, uh, we need to distinguish here between analog information and digital information. Uh, the analog information can be reduced to digital states by digitizing. Let's say you take a, you, you take a piece of paper, write your name, you write Jerry on the paper, and that is analog information. You can put your phone number as well. 
did you change the entropy of that paper and stuff? Yes, you did, but it's it's not quite. I'm not quite clear how you can use information theory to put a bit content on that analog state there and what you did. But you can take that piece of paper and scan it, and you create a digital image of your information created, or you can digitize it by some means, and that becomes digital. So, so to me, any data that is digitized, it qualifies for this Shannon information theory definition of information in terms of probabilistic nature, in terms of the Shannon's function, you know, measuring in bits of information, the content and everything else. Uh, but but you can actually do this on any physical process, on any aspect of our, our everyday life where you can define probabilities. You can actually use that framework on anything. So it kind of the everything converges to, which is maybe why John Wheeler suggested that the, the whole universe uh, emerges from information in, within the universe uh, and including the matter and space-time. It's, it's a very powerful idea. So tell us, Alvin, uh, a little bit of the story of the growth of digital information, digital data, uh, how it has grown, say, from, I don't know, the 40s, the 50s, to where it is at now and where it is going, you know, the, the pace of that, that growth. Paint us a little bit of a picture of that, please. It's quite scary. Um a scary image you get, uh, a scary glimpse if you start digging into the data and looking at um, trends. It's, um, it, in fact, it's, um, it, it raises uh, a number of questions and uh, extrapolations that I'm going to touch on um, in this discussion. Um, what, you need, what we need to understand is um, we stored information uh, for millennia essentially on paper. Or maybe on caves writings and other means or, or leather. We, we wrote, physically wrote information onto something. This has changed in 1996. In 1996, the, this year is a, a pivotal, a, a, a very critical transition year where the digital storing information on digital uh, devices became cheaper than paper. So uh, writing a letter by hand and giving it to somebody by hand, leaving aside the cost of postage and other things, it became more expensive than in terms of the cost of the paper and ink and everything you add to write that letter. It became more expensive than writing an email or writing the same letter digitally and giving it to somebody digitally. This is it goes back to the gigabyte per dollar cost and uh, the cost of paper and the cost of physical things. And in 1996, digital information became cheaper than paper for storing data. From that moment on, we transitioned in our entire society into a digital world. Okay, what does it mean? Well, we we bank online, we socialize online, um, we produce all the documents um, digitally. We have all the video, the media, the audio, the music, the, everything is online. We, um, we, we go to school online. That was uh, 
highly visible during the pandemic when everything moved online. All the meetings, all the, the, the teaching and the educational processes moved online. We do assess, assessing online, exams online. Every, everything moved to a digital um, world, a digital economy, if you want. And I have some numbers. We generate every day 500 million tweets on the planet, 294 billion emails, 4 million gigabytes of Facebook data, 65 billion WhatsApp messages, and 720,000 hours of new content added on YouTube um, every day. And there is, no, there is no end to this. There is no limit. Because nobody wants to delete any data. I mean, I'm not sure about you, but I, in the past, I used to have a, a special suitcase, a special box with very important possessions that you would take out of your home if there is a fire, if there is an emergency or something. And usually they would contain typically passports, you know, I don't know, birth certificates, maybe title deeds for the house, these kind of things. Maybe some family jewelries or some personal items. I still have that suitcase, but in it, I still have the passports and other things, but I have a two terabyte digital data storage device where I keep all our family photos, all our um, family movies, um, all our important documents, all everything uh, is digitized, even all photos from, uh, you know, past, past years in, in our family tree and everything, they, they've been digitized. I scan everything, I have them digital, and I keep them on a hard disk drive. And I, it's one of my most precious possessions is, is in the getaway suitcase. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure how, uh, what, other, what your readers value uh, most, but this is what I would take when I go um, somewhere. And guess what? I keep copies of this. Just in case there is a malfunction of the device, I don't want to lose this data. And nobody wants to delete anything. Nobody wants to lose the data. And I said to you that in 1996, paper became more expensive to store information than digital data. That is one, one aspect only. The fact that to copy something from the paper, it needs a printing machine or it needs somebody to physically handwrite uh, information. The digital information, once it's created, is copied in an instant and is copied infinite times. You can copy it without any limit. You can have a book which is digitized, recopied for every person on this planet if they want to, to have that book and if it's free to, to access it. There is, there is no limit to that. So in other words, the information creation and the storage has accelerated to um, levels that nobody is seriously looking at this. Uh, where do we put all this stuff and um, how much it costs to do it and how long can we do this for? So the answer is the, the reason we are doing this is because information is so valuable to individuals, but also to corporations, and it became a commodity. Uh, if you look at the business model of uh, companies like the big tech, the big giants like Google, Facebook, Instagram, and all these guys, YouTube, 
they are the leading corporations on the planet today. They are not. These are not factories making cars or planes. These are not uh, energy uh, producing giants. They are um, high tech. We call them high tech giants, but in, essentially, I call them digital um, economy giants. You know, all they do they they use information from the public and overall information to store it, to manipulate it, to process it, and to trade it, to to sell it essentially. And most 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 often, this is done through advertising and people watching content or accessing their services, digital services, and um, advertising being slotted into the the things. But also trading information uh, for real, where where people have to pay for content. And it appears to be unlimited because um, let's take YouTube. Um, YouTube makes money by uploading, uh, allowing people to upload videos on um, online and uh, viewers are watching these videos. YouTube um, adds commercial adverts in the videos themselves. They have some paid channels as well and so on, subscription model. But essentially it's, um, it's based on content added by um, users and reselling that content. But they also have an option to add content which is private. So I have a YouTube channel, which is, um, I said to you about my two terabyte hard disk drive where I keep family and personal things, but now you can put them on a cloud. You don't need to even have this physical device at home. You can, if you don't have super private files and super confidential files, which are not entirely safe on the cloud, you can put them on a cloud. You can upload them somewhere. So I have uh, some, some of our family videos uploaded to a channel. But guess what? That channel is not public. The, the YouTube gives you this option to make it a private, so you need a, a link to access it. It's not visible to search engines. In other words, they don't make any money with that content. But in the same time, I can upload unlimited. They never asked me to pay anything. They never told me you have a limit of that many gigabytes. You exceed that limit, you cannot upload anything. I can upload unlimited amounts and this free, and they don't make any money with that. So there is a problem here because there is a cost associated to storing this information and keeping the servers running. They, um, uh, the, 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 it's, it's stratospheric, it's incredible how much uh, energy it needs. So I predict um, there, there will be a moment of reckoning where all these digital services and things, they will become more or less commodities um, uh, from, from the two ends, the user end and the, 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 the giant um, high-tech end. Uh, in other words, we will not be able to do these, um, these things for free uh, indefinitely for too long. There will be some kind of cost um, associated to storing information and all these digital services at some point in the future because um, the growth is so stratospheric, it will, it's unsustainable. And I have, I have some numbers. Um, we, in 2020, we created 59 zettabytes of information, okay, the whole year. This is 59 trillion gigabytes, to give you a number. I calculated, and maybe I'm wrong, at once, how much paper would be required to print out one zettabyte 
of of data just just for you know um, illustrative purposes and i estimated uh, based on my calculations looking at how 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 much paper you'd get from a single tree i estimated that you'd need 20 trillion trees for just one zettabyte 20 trillion trees like and there's only three and a half trillion trees on the planet so that gives you a sense of how big a zettabyte is correct and um, just to set the record straight uh, zettabyte is um, uh, 10 to the power 21 um, in terms of bits contained is eight times 10 to the power 21 in terms of number of bits because a byte has eight bits so Looking at the numbers in 2018, it was about 33 zettabytes. It grew to 59 in 2020. Anyway, the, the growth rate appears to be... I, I, I wrote an article for The Conversation, um, an online platform, and uh, I had to look at these numbers in details, uh, in great detail. But when I um, wrote the article, I estimated 61% growth rate um, year on year. Uh, later, I read visited my calculations, and I think uh, that number was wrong. It appears to be about 33%, about half of that. It's about 33% uh, growth rate, um, real growth rate, based on the data we have on the last uh, couple of years. Why we are looking at the last couple of years? Because 99% of the data has been produced in the last 10 years on the planet. This is getting exponentially growing now at a very, very fast rate. By 2025, the estimated this growth rate, it's 175 zettabytes uh, in a year being produced. Uh, last year, we produced 85 zettabytes, by the way. So 2021. Um, you made your estimation, very interesting estimation on, um, um, on the, the amount of paper. But I think uh, in my uh, converse uh, the conversation article, I made an estimation on... Um, if each uh, bit uh, would be a coin, I think this is what I <laughs> I looked at, and you stack them up into a um, um, a stack of um, physical coins, like one pound coin. Okay, uh, I said um, how high um, this stack will take you, and um, it turns out um, that taking three millimeter thickness of a coin. A zettabyte will make up a stack of coins that will be 2,550 light years. To give you an idea, it will take you to... So the distance from here to, to the moon is one second in light years. <laughs> the distance to the sun, I think, is, uh, if I'm not wrong, is eight minutes in light years. In other words, the light travels in eight minutes from the sun. 2,550 light years will take us to the nearest star system, Alpha Centauri, 600 times. So the stack of coins of one zettabyte will take you to Alpha Centauri 600 times back and forth. And that's just one zettabyte? That one zettabyte, today we are making 59 times that amount every year. Okay, so they, just to just to set the record, uh, it gives some numbers, so our um, um, listeners can relate to some physical objects, like you did your paper estimate. This is another uh, another estimate. <clears throat> so <clears throat> then, uh, in 2020, I I took a look. My interest in uh, following up on the 2019 article 
I made some interesting um, extrapolations there, linking information to dark matter um, and the fifth state of matter and so on. So I became interested in um, in this aspect and 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 I, I wanted to calculate an information content, a possible information content per elementary particles or per matter itself by looking at the matter in a similar way to biological uh, matter and the information content in the matter itself uh, being similar to the DNA of uh, biological um, um, uh, systems. And in, in, in this study, I came up with something and uh, the, the, that something was um, so confusing that I said, uh, that can't be right because if I take our planet and I calculate how much information content would be in the whole body mass of the planet, including oceans and everything in it and everything on it and the atmosphere. I came up with some numbers and they were not too far off from our uncertainty in defining the mass of the planet in the first place. Um, so I relaxed a little bit when I, I, I saw that because initially I, I, I thought I found a... A, a total fallacy, some kind of non-physical answer, which will, to some degree, invalidate everything I've done previously, but uh, it didn't. But in this process, I started to look at these huge numbers um, um, that we are producing, 10 to the power 21 bits of information every year. And if the growth is 33% every year, then I wrote a paper in uh, 2020, and I said, what will happen to the, the, the global digital data information that we are producing, assuming we don't stop this, and we are producing at ever-increasing rates? Uh, and in my study, I took four growth rates, 5% per year, 20%, and 50%. Actually, I think I took only three growth rates and 50%. It turns out the real growth rate is about 33%. So I'm somewhere in the upper side of my estimates, okay? But I took this um, assumption that we are these three, three different numbers and I, I worked out the mathematics of everything. And it turns out uh, these growth rates, we're going to create more bits of information than all the atoms on the planet, which is a number of about 10 to the power 50 atoms, on Earth, including everything that makes up the Earth, in about 1,200 years at a 5% growth rate, 340 years at 20% growth rate, 150 years at 50% growth rate. Now we know we are about 33%. So we are looking at around 200-something years at this growth rate. We will have more digital bits of information than the atoms on the planet. So the question I'm asking you now at the moment, we are storing this information in physical systems like data storage devices, servers, magnetic data storage, flash drives, optical data storage. If we create information that equals the number of atoms on the planet, and we don't know how to store information on a single atom, yeah? We don't know how to do that. We can't do that. At the moment, we use thousands of atoms per bit, thousands, tens of thousands. Where is going to go that information and how we are going to mitigate this? How we are going to sustain this? I call I called this information um, singularity, the information catastrophe. This is the title of the article. And in the same article, I took a look at 
um, the number of bits that we are creating, uh, which will reach an impossible level that can't be sustained. I looked at the energy required, assuming the most effective Landauer limit energy required to create a bit, uh, not even looking at these material constraints and uh, potential energies that you need to sustain the bit and the magnetic states or whatever you are using. I just assume that we are storing this information at the maximum efficiency. We're going to run out of power in about 100 years. All the power that we use on the planet today is about 18, 19 terawatts to run the planet. And I mean transportation, heating, cooling, um, illuminations, all the, the electricity, all the industries, everything we are using, internet and everything, computations, everything, everything we do on the planet, it's about, let's say, 19 terawatts today. In about 110 years, the digital information itself will overtake all this power requirement, will be eaten out by the digital information itself, which is another component of this information catastrophe. In the same study, I took a look at um, assuming my mass energy information principle, equivalence principle is correct, uh, and assuming information has indeed mass and we are creating so much of it, it works out that in a few hundred years, um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but uh, it's a not very far distant uh, future. Let's, let's put it like this. If my, if my principle is correct, we're going to... Half the mass of the planet will be made up of digital bits. Okay? This is um, how scary it is. Today, today, the mass of all the information that we created on the planet... In total, not in one year, in total, everything created in the past... And up to this point today, digital information, it's only about the mass of one E. coli bacteria, just to give you an idea. So you take a bacteria, you measure the mass of that bacteria, and I had the, I had the mass of that. Uh, I can give you the, if I can grab this information um, uh, in a second, I can give you the mass. <clears throat> so this would be 23 10 times 10 to the power minus 17 kilograms. So you are talking about 10 to the minus um, um, uh, 17 um, kilograms. It's uh, billions, thousands of billions smaller than um, a, a, a gram. <laughs> In other words, it's a, it's a bacteria, the mass of bacteria. That is the mass of information, of all the information on the planet today. But uh, the growth we are projecting here it will reach some incredible levels <laughs> that will make up up to half the, the mass of the planet will be digital information. Which is extraordinary. And I think that by 2030, we will beginning to become much more aware of this growth. And like it'll be long before 100 years that it'll actually be have a serious impact on societies and economies. Uh, like I think... It, in the next 10 years, even with the growth rates, we'll be, begin to become aware of this major cost of storing information and storing data. Well, I, I call this the invisible crisis, to be honest, in some of my uh, interviews and articles. Um, and you, you mentioned in Ireland, the uh, data servers uh, consuming so much power. Uh, I have some numbers here. I mean, the largest in the world today is called the Citadel. 
and this is uh, located in um, uh, Reno, Nevada. It occupies 7.2 million square feet, and it needs 815 megawatts power to run. Okay, on the planet, on the planet, we have 600 today hyperscale data centers. Okay, these are only data servers that have more than. Um, uh, 500 servers, if you want, like it's hyper server, uh, hyperscale data server, so very large ones, okay, 600. And we are building 100 new ones every year. No, every two years, I'm sorry. Every two years, we have 100 new data servers every two years. Two years. These are, these are the numbers. In terms of this uh, moment of reckoning, uh, this becoming unsustainable, I think it's already happening to some degree. I want to tell a short story now. Um, at the University of Portsmouth, we have a lot of our teaching activities um, occurring. Well, teaching materials and some of the activities and everything, they are kept on a platform called Moodle. It's an online platform for teaching, learning, and education. It's uh, very powerful. And I am uh, serving in a number of committees. One of them is the Ethics Committee at the university. And uh, the last meeting we had, um, it was a discussion about all the ethics forms and ethics applications and all the reviews that we are doing and everything that is happening. They are being stored on this Moodle server. And guess what? This is run by Google. So university works with Google to provide the storage, the cloud, the, everything. We, we even have Google email. is uh, port.ac.uk, but it runs on Google email um, uh, platform. and. Um, We've been told at that committee meeting that we can no longer store in indefinite amounts of information on, on this ethics committee Moodle server because there are caps and limits now to the amount of information we can store. It's simply too much. And Google is already imposing some kind of limits or you have to pay something extra in order to... Um, add uh, content. Uh, and it's a very simple explanation. They don't make any money with this. Uh, it's, it goes back to those videos I mentioned to you on YouTube, which I keep private. I, I Only I watch those videos. There is no advertising revenue. There is no benefit to Google. And yet I can upload uh, continuously and there is no limit, no cap how much I can upload there. But there is a cost to the company for keeping them there. So this is going to come to an end. Um, it, it will be a cost to us um, at some point. I don't think it's sustainable. And uh, this information catastrophe is just a, a, a metaphor, a scientific metaphor, if you want. It's, it's, it's a singularity sort of like that will never, will never be reached because the market forces are going to balance out um, uh, these technological developments and things will reach an equilibrium. They, they cannot continue... They cannot continue. Here's another uh, element of, of of all that. I've I've worked for almost thirty years in the internet since nineteen ninety four uh, space, and and what I noticed in working with large websites or large intranets or data environments was massive, massive quantities of waste. Uh, so. I, here's one study that I came across recently, and it said only 5% of data is accessed again three months after it's first stored. Uh, and I could give you multiple other quotes which talk about 90% of data unused. Like we talked about photographs earlier. In 2020, 
we took 1.4 trillion photos. One, 1. 1.4 trillion photos just in one year. So more photos in 2020 than in the 20th century. And the vast majority of those are not being accessed. You, you, you said about we never delete. And so much of what we don't delete is actually crap. And th that if this apocalypse keeps going or catastrophe in the sense, we, we're actually, in my understanding, we, we don't have data centers, we have data dumps. We, we are creating and storing massive quantities of data that has little or no value. I I couldn't agree more. This it, it's almost insane. Is uh, we talk about climate change or 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 or, or food um, crisis and energy crisis, but this is this is something we are doing uh, sleepwalking into into this crisis to some degree. I I see it like it's almost invisible. Nobody at that committee meeting. In fact, there was an academic who said, "I thought we can upload infinite amounts to this server. There is no limit." Um, and that was a physics academic. So uh, how can you even uh, make a statement like this? You know, that, uh, nothing is infinite. You, I mean, nothing is infinite. Nothing, everything is finite on our planet. <laughs> uh, universe is infinite, but <laughs> we have a finite, um, you know, quantity of everything. And um, information is one of them. We, we, we will not be able to sustain this growth um, forever. And, you know, I fear most about some of the big tech companies which have a business model based on um, uh, you know revolving around this uh, trading of information and um, you know storing and manipulating and they i'm sure they will adapt i'm sure they have very smart people and um, and scientists and engineers and strategists looking at the business model looking at future um, roadmaps and uh, you know uh, adapting the business and doing changes but the, they they will have to change well, to some degree, I think it's part of the plan. Like, I think in some ways, big tech is like is like the illegal drugs industry. Uh, it, it gives you free. It gives you it, it gives you free stuff to to get you addicted. And then once you're addicted, it tells you you have to pay. Correct. You know, are, are, are you you know, so now in your ethics committee, it's not going to be easy to shift all that out of Google or so Google now in and and also that Google has access to your ethics <laughs> discussions <laughs> is 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 even more scary in in and I think we don't recognize that either that we are storing uh, private information on a cloud which is not private exactly it's not private which is not yeah. which is not and which is that very cloud is based one of its core business models is based on the manipulation of us uh, to sell us to advertisers. So they want our private information so that they can get a deeper map of who we are, uh, so that they can sell us more stuff that will destroy the planet even faster. So we're kind of, data has become, even the 5% that's used, a lot of that use is for advertising. It's not for to help the Amazon uh, recuperate or to you know regenerate uh, nature. It's actually to create more uh, paper and plastic packages for Amazon that'll that'll send out more stuff that we don't really need. And to add to your um, final comment, they use artificial intelligence to. Um, 
scan through all these data sets and, uh, and clouds uh, uh, databases uh, to help the AI learn um, things, but also create predictive algorithms about ourselves, about our behavior, our patterns, our to maximize their, um, you know, advertising revenue, you know, profitability of things. Um, so this is kind of accelerating even more now with the development in machine learning and artificial intelligence. Yeah, and, and just in relation to that, like I would say that for every dollar that's spent on AI to do positive things about the climate change, there's $100 being spent for advertising AI to get us to, to buy more four-ton SUVs and to because advertising is is in essence selling to our weaknesses i mean you don't need to advertise for potatoes or you know for bicycles or for most of the stuff that we are advertised for it's the stuff we don't really need that much but makes a lot of money for you know a, a brand, so to speak. So a lot of the essence of advertising is actually the reason why we have a climate crisis, because the climate crisis is driven by the human consumption crisis. And this advertising, um, aggressive advertising um, policy and uh, campaign, it goes back to uh, some fundamentals which are overlooked by everyone. The fact that human brain is essentially is a biological computer. So it's a, it's a computing machine, essentially, the human brain, a very effective one. And computers need programs to function. They need, computers don't um, run themselves. They need a program to tell them what to do and they do what they are programmed to do. Uh, in a similar way, this is how human brain works. The, as a child, you are born and you you get programmed by learning from your parents how to walk, how to speak, how to you upload the information into your brain and you 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 create the programs um, to 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 live, uh, okay, effectively to stay safe, uh, to to feed yourself, to to learn. But another another aspect of this is that you can program the brain by how do you program the brain? The brain you you pass on information to the brain, to the individual, through some means. And these means are uh, written media, television, radio, social media. It's, it's through the media. It's through the media, through the internet advertising. Through the... So by watching on telly um, uh, the same advert 10, 20 times a day, or listening on the radio the same advert 10, 20 times a day, or on YouTube, your brain subconsciously gets programmed. You program people's minds through various means, you know, and one of them is this advertising. Uh, it's just information projected into the brain and the brain registered, registers this in a subconscious. It's not even, you're not even thinking about this. Before you know it, you end up buying that product because your brain just does it. You know, it tells you, it, it creates the desire without even you realizing that you've you've been programmed into this so this is fascinating stuff um but uh, i i i wanted to add uh, quickly uh, one one little aspect before we wrap up this um i think is uh, is very interesting to just to mention this uh, 
the fact that these numbers are so huge, um, and I realize that we are looking at 100, 200 years, and uh, the, the, the Earth is a few billion years um, old, and um, human civilization is a few thousand years old. Uh, and we've been doing this for less than 100 years. And we are looking at another 100 or 100 something years to have more digital bits than atoms on the planet. Okay? So when I realized this, I, uh, another idea uh, crept into my mind. Uh, the fact that what if our objective reality is not as objective? What if um, the whole reality is actually a, a simulation, um, uh, more like a, a virtual reality digital simulation? And... Um, this is because of these huge numbers we 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 kind of we get there very quickly very quickly we get there in terms of these numbers so at this level you can imagine that a, a, an advanced civilization would be able to simulate the whole universe not not just our world you know or um, our um, reality uh, and i'm not the only one thinking like this it's a huge community of people out there um, thinking that our reality is not what we think and uh, there are too many unknowns and uh, a simulation hypothesis is a very viable scientific option and there are serious academics looking at this from philosophical scientific angle from all sorts of aspects and i'm pleased to tell you that in 2022 i published um, my interest is to Uh, resolve some of these things, not only from a theoretical fundamental physics angle, but also to add validity by experimenting and putting these ideas to test. And I'm pleased to let you know that uh, in 2022, I published uh, a, a possible experiment to to test uh, these ideas, you know, including the simulation hypothesis. It will be a consequence of a successful experiment. It will be that information is indeed the fifth state of matter, And it shows that we probably live in a simulation. The, the whole universe is a, 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 a kind of digitized um, simulation. This article is published in 2022, and um, I'm also happy to announce the, that there has been a lot of interest in my um, information studies, information physics studies, from scientists, academics, and the public. And I'm pleased to announce the, the creation of the first institute in the world of information physics is called um, informationphysicsinstitute.org in one word. It has been created um, uh, about eight weeks ago um, and the purpose of this institute is to bring together um, an international range of public academics and thinkers um, interested in, in these uh, information physics um, uh, research aspects but also to fundraise um, the, the, the necessary funding to perform the experiment I proposed in 2022. So there is a fundraising campaign uh, that will appear very soon, um, and uh, it's all channeled through this new institute. Uh, and I, I, I wanted to mention this because it's possible some of your listeners uh, might be actually very deeply interested in these, uh, in these um, ideas and uh, in, the, in the science. And if they want to get involved, this institute is there. We have a free membership uh, option, and um, we are happy to, uh, you know, to get as many members and collaborators and, uh, you know, funding um, institutions uh, as possible. Thank you. Yes, and and uh, you know the, the, your ideas and um, are. <laughs> 
are quite profound and um this recognition of this issue as you say this invisible crisis i think is does not have the awareness that it needs to have uh, among either you know industry or, or or politics or otherwise so raising these issues is is uh, of major uh, major import i recognize the profundity of of um uh, the the work that you were uh, addressing and i'm sure lots of people will be interested uh, in this institute i've i've been participating in or observing some of the discussions and they are they are profoundly important for the future uh, of us as a species I, I sometimes wonder if we'll actually even survive as a species maybe equilibrium is actually the extinction of the human species uh, on, on on this planet who who knows because what we if we know anything we know that just because it happened in the past doesn't mean it will happen in the future and an equilibrium may not actually involve the human species being around that, that, that's correct <laughs> it's a very unorthodox way of ending this but uh, it's it's a possible scenario it's, 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 <laughs> if you're interested in these sorts of ideas, please check out my book, Worldwide Waste, at jerrymcgovern.com. To hear other interesting podcasts, please visit thisishcd.com.